0: Hi, this is Robert Richmond, author of The Culture Blueprint, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle.
1: Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars, Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Robert Richman. Rob is a culture strategist and was the co-creator of Zappos Insights, an innovative program focused on educating companies on the secrets behind breakthrough employee culture. Rob built Zappos Insights from a small website to a thriving multi-million dollar business, teaching over 25,000 students per year. Through his work, he catalyzed employee culture improvements at hundreds of companies. As one of the world's authorities on employee culture, Robert's a sought-after keynote speaker. At conferences around the world, and has been hired to teach culture in person at companies like Google, Toyota, and Eli Lilly. He graduated from Northwestern University with a degree in film. As well as from Georgetown University's Leadership Coaching Program, he's a member of the Transformational Leadership Council. Rob lives in outside of San Diego, California, and is here to talk about his book, *The Culture Blueprint*. Welcome, Rob. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me, when you were growing
0: up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you? That would have to be my uncle Steve. Was is a, an electric engineer. He's worked in all kinds of different technology, and I love the way he always lit up around tech, around figuring something out. We would build things together. We'd build remote control cars together. He would always have this excitement and fascination with things and be able to convey it really well. And I always just had this feeling of excitement and potential around him.
1: It was infectious. Even when he probably didn't know something, he was excited about figuring it out.
0: That's, exactly. That's exactly. Well said.
1: So as you and he worked on things, I'm imagining probably incre- with increasing sophistication over the years. Probably picked up a lot of that enthusiasm for sharing. Can you remember a time, maybe early in your career, where you were looking? bring people together or to advance one of your projects or priorities. And some of the ways that he reached out to people or shared with you in that one-on-one sense came through and allowed you to be successful because of his influence.
0: Yeah, I think it's that infectious passion. It started early for me at college. I started a magazine just from scratch and didn't even at that point have budget to pay anybody. So it took really the vision, the enthusiasm, the organization, getting a group of people together in service of a higher goal. That's what I've always loved, those projects. I did that with a magazine. We did that with a web development company and what was basically the first co-working space in America. And I really had that feeling doing that with Zappos Insights, the project that Tony Shea of Zappos tasked me with there at Zappos.
1: I imagine that not every project or opportunity that comes along taps into that passion and it serves for you as a filter in being able to identify an opportunity that really fits, something that you can get behind. Do you find that to be true?
0: Yeah. When all cylinders light up like that, for sure. And I've noticed for myself, that if it doesn't, how can I add that? For example, when I wrote my book, The Culture Blueprint, very lonely process, but bringing in a thought partner to go through that, to help me organize it, then an editor and a designer, even when it's just me working alone, figuring out ways to work with a team always gets me going and inspired.
1: When you talked about meeting Tony, say um, the founder of Zappos, that was almost a a chance encounter. It was something that you initiated because of the role that you were serving then. What was, tell us the story and, and Talk about a couple of the highlights of just that encounter because it led to such an amazing experience for you.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. I, I feel I, I define luck as being in the right place at the right time with the right people. And that's what happened to me several times. I at Georgetown Coaching School, I met Dave Logan, the author of Tribal Leadership. He hired me to market the book. I had no idea what I was doing, but with this great team and these authors, and we did all kinds of things to to market it. And we got the book to Tony. I sent it to him. He loved it. And then he invited us up there. For to talk to the executives about tribal leadership. And he was such a fan. I actually structured this whole project where they sponsored the first audiobook of it. And we produced that. I produced the audiobook. And that that day that we met, we went to a company happy hour. And by I put that in quotes really, because that quote unquote happy hour was better than most weddings I've ever been to. Was karaoke. Wait, 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 how so? it, yeah, it was karaoke. Yeah, it's karaoke. It was drinks. It was food. They were doing sketches. It was this party at four o'clock on a Wednesday that they did quarterly with the merch group and just had an absolute blast. And what's funny about it is Tony had been talking about this idea about productizing culture, about how can all this interest coming into Zappos become a product itself. And at that party, I saw Tony speaking with a guy I recognized. And I said, Tony, that's David DeAngelo. And he said, I know. I We were both fans of this guy whose real name is Evan Pagan, but his pen name is David DeAngelo. And he's a dating expert. And I said, I've read all his stuff. And Tony said, I've read all his stuff. And we bonded not only over that, but about the business model that Evan had created around experiences, around information. And that really started this amazing conversation with, with Tony about how to productize culture. And what I did was just sent him a lot of ideas that I had, not charging, not saying I can consult for you, just saying, oh, I think you could do this. I think you could do that. It was that excitement that Steve had of that passion. And he noticed that And one of the, the values at Zappos is to be passionate and determined. And Tony noticed that in me. He said, do you want to come in and do this with us? And I said, yes. And it wasn't that simple. I had, It was eight months of talks, of proposals, of meetings, of figuring out this whole business, something I'd never done before. And I put together this whole plan and they said, okay, great. Come in and, and do this. And you know the, what's interesting about that story too is with by month one or two, I threw that plan out the window. It wasn't working. Once you get on the ground, you see the playing field is a little different. And I literally had panic attacks at one point, but I was pot committed. I had moved there. I bet everything on this. And... The this is the idea of a business pivots and figured it out because I had to and I realized that he really trusted that passion and determination to figure it out even if it wasn't the right plan at first that we would figure it out.
1: Yeah, it's often said that real leaders don't necessarily have all the answers but they know the right questions to ask and they know mm-hmm. what to commit to in order to move and uh, advance businesses goals and priorities. Yeah. Well said. Now, one of your early versions of what's become the Zappos Insights program is Culture Bootcamp. Mm-hmm.
0: Describe how you formulated That because as much as you were teaching, you're also learning from that experience. Oh yeah, tremendously. It was a huge pivot because I got called in to launch this video subscription site, and I promised Tony that we would get five thousand members in there in a year and have this incredible business model. And uh, and we were struggling with these videos; nobody was buying it. The videos weren't great, and we had this idea to do an event where people would come in and we would tape the video of it of them coming in. and We we invited some people in, and they loved it. We had a blast. We got them drunk. We got them throughout the halls of the culture, taught them everything we knew, recorded it. And then at the end of it, I said, okay, how was the content? Because we're going to, we video this, we're going to sell it. They said, the content was, and I freaked out. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, I bet my life on this. And they said, hold on, the experience of being here blew our minds. I was like, tell me more. And they said, we knew a lot of you. said We're Zappos, super fans. We've read the books you've read. We knew the content, but this experience that we had, now we believe we can do it. And that's when I realized that it's not the content that really shifts people. It's experiences that change beliefs and change the entire business model from this video subscription website to this experience-driven business where we would invite people anything from a free tour to an upgrade to a day to this boot camp, And it caught Tony by surprise. I remember telling him, like I said, we can do this. And he said, yeah, we can really cover our costs with that. I said, no, we're not covering our costs. We're charging five grand a person because you can't walk into Nike and ask for two days of marketing lessons. People are going to pay a premium for this. And at first it was not easy at first because Tony had said that, look, if you're going to do this, this is skunk work you were we can't authorize a whole lot of resources. You want a website, you build the website. You want customers, you get customers. We couldn't just ask all the Zappos customers to come in. And so that first class that we did, it I was literally dialing for dollars, just saying, "Hey, Bill, who do you know who can pay five grand for code for for a, a corporate program?" Because we promised we'd sell we would sell it out, and and we did. And after that first one, I knew we were onto something. Where after the whole thing, literally, a guy held up his credit card and said, "I want to book the next class now before it gets booked up," and I knew we were off to the races with an experience-driven business model.
1: That's powerful. Where he's actually committing to it before he's completed the first leg of his own experience. In the book, you say that we were a belief-changing company that happened to sell corporate training. Yes, And that's a very different paradigm that you found and was validated how. It wasn't validated by books. It wasn't validated by surveys. What was it that really helped you validate that this was the path to take and this is the perspective that was really going to lead to those results that you 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 truly desired.
0: Yeah. So what happened was doing these events, innovation happens out of need, right? And one of the things that we did with this experience was at one point we had a two-hour window we didn't have anything to fill with. And Donovan Robertson, my partner at Zappos with the venture, said, why don't we do what we do with mentoring where we put them up and listen to customer service calls? And I said, you got to be crazy. Who wants to listen to two hours of people returning shoes? And he said, we got nothing else to do with them. We put them up there on the phones and we couldn't pull them off the phones. And we're like, the next class is starting. They're like, no, we're on a call. Hold on. And we got them back in the room and said, what was happening up there? Why did you guys like it so much? And they said, we got to see your people innovate in real time, do wow customer service. They didn't even have to call managers. They just figured it out in the moment, each call was like this masterclass in customer service. And it was something where we weren't the experts. We weren't teaching them anything. They went through this experience live and got to ask the customer service representative questions and talk to them. And more and more, it was the experience that shifted them. And we kept designing it. The, designing the experience, especially the before, middle, after, because there was a big change when we started sending them surveys in advance. And at first it was to shape the program, but literally eventually we stopped reading the surveys because the surveys were just to prep them for the experience of learning. And then afterward we said to them, okay, whoever creates the best changes and documents them, we're going to fly you back and you're going to speak at the next event. So develop the sense of competition afterward, everything experiential, and that developed this model that we could keep going of these boot camps. So
1: many business leaders read books, hire consultants, and attend events to really help understand and evolve their work culture. I was struck by your one word gestalt of culture. You say culture is a feeling. Talk about how that is useful to small business leaders who are looking to identify and articulate what their culture is and
0: figure out if it's really what they want their company to represent. Sure, so I believe to a certain extent, everyone's a culture expert. Everyone, You've walked into an event or a party and just immediately gotten feeling and said, this is going to be great. We're going to have a good time tonight. And there's other times where you've walked into this small dinner party and just immediately got this feeling like you want to get out of there as soon as possible. And so immediately something hits us as a feeling. So whatever that first touch point is in your business, anything from the website to a phone call to the person greeting you at the door, people get an initial feeling and they don't always have the reason to justify it. They can't even necessarily articulate it, but they still get a feeling. So paying attention to all those different touch points of the experience and noticing what feels. Does that convey that to me is culture is when you're in that room when you're in that meeting, and I've developed through the culture blueprint and and other programs like my culture MBA, what those little things are, and those patterns, for example, one of the things I've realized about great teams is what they tend to do is go very quickly between humor and doing the work, humor and doing the work, and they can flip on a dime. Whereas if you don't want to do the work, you're just doing humor the whole time. Whereas if you're too serious and you're not breaking it, 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 you're taking the work too seriously. But the really strong teams would be laughing at a joke and then suddenly back in the work and they could go back and forth between those. So those little distinctions I found out through this culture hacking work. But at the end of the day, anybody at that meeting would say, wow, that was a really fun meet. Fun is an important part of it. And
1: yet there are still policies that are in place because Zappos certainly had policies. And one of the things that I learned reading your book was that as important as policies are because they're important guidelines, less is more. And you talked about supporting the 99% that are going to follow it, understand it, and abide by it, rather than putting a lot of effort into the 1% who are unaware, resistant, or rebellious. Yes. And the one example that I think is really great that jumps off the page for me is the one about a dress policy, where their entire dress policy is don't offend anyone. Now, I belong to tennis leagues where there are three pages of what you can can't wear during a tournament or a league match. Yes. This is just so clear. Don't offend anyone right? How do you get to the point where you're thinking about ways that support the 99% rather than
0: looking at every contingency as a a lawyer? Yes. Tony had this phrase that was great. He said, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? And it's that kind of pivot to make decisions of, yes, you might be right that this person violated this policy or whatever that is, but are are you going to be happy? And it's this tiny percent of people who do it. And unfortunately, I, I I, I wish all businesses would get this because I've had hurtful experiences as a result of this I remember my girlfriend at the time we went to this yogurt place and she said it, it, it's my birthday I the, the person here before said on my birthday I get a free yogurt and the owner was there and he said no that's not our policy and she said oh that person said that and he said who was it who told you and she said I, I don't know I don't really want to say anything and he said, no I really need to know who told you and she's feeling awkward I'm feeling awkward and they said no that's not our policy we left there never to return again right when all the easy yes he was right that's not their policy but he could have said you know what I'm going to back up my person here is this free. you it's not we don't usually do this, but it's your birthday. We're going to do this. She would have been a fan for life over less than $2 worth of frozen yogurt that they bought. So would you rather be right about the policy or be happy? And that's to protect against those people, those small percent of people who would violate it. And they would And People got away with things at the Zappos customer service policy of the year long returns. But it's a minor cost to pay for all those people who are going to be happy instead.
1: Many times people will overlook or give little credence to a lot of talk about values. Yet values is something that runs so deep in being able to create a high-performing culture like at Zappos and at every other company that has embarked on this journey. And you share a three-step process for turning values into action, where you say, start with a standard. And that is something that describes a value plus a level where you're unwilling to compromise. Then you make a bold promise. Both to your customers and to your people, and then you deliver on that promise regardless of market conditions or other obstacles. Yes, and that's how to really show the very clear delineation between values and putting it into action day to day. So people know that it's not just a poster on the wall. These are our values. This is how we live it. How is it that companies are able to adopt this into their own organizations? Do you have an example, maybe from someone who came through one of your trainings or who's who's taken the online course in order? to understand how to use this process and what was the impact that they had in their organization?
0: Yeah, the values is one where it's, it's not a quick fix. This is a deep process. It took Zappos a year to figure out the values, to look at the people who are, are the, the the stars of the culture, analyze them, see who they are. We did that with Tej, who ran a an amusement park company, about 100 employees, and went through this values process of articulating what those are and holding people to that standard. And it's amazing the way that the idea of living these right so I'll, I'll give you an example from that story is part of it like at was the value of service part of living it is every executive has to go through that ha, has to go through not only customer service training but every year doing customer service hours of it because that's the value is service right and so when when i heard that that about the, the company there and and their ceo and wanting to have this great experience for the amusement park i said when's the last time you really worked the ticket counter there and the ceo said oh i did it uh, an hour last month, and I said, "Hour, your people don't work in hours; they work in days." When's the last time you worked a day in front of there? And I said, "Okay, worked a day, and then reported back on the experience." And it was really incredible to watch. He said, "It was so fascinating." The first hour, I had so much fun. I'm taking tickets. I'm having fun. Second hour, okay. Third, it's getting a little boring. Fourth, wait a minute, these chairs are like hard as rocks. And everyone around him said, "I know. We've been looking to get better chairs for years. You got you won't give us better chairs." And then after the fifth or sixth hour, I said, "Man, that theme music really gets annoying." And they said, "Yeah, that's our." every day. So they change the theme music, got the softer chairs, and what do you know? The customer service ratings go up. The business like has even more revenue. These things from little changes. So it starts with a value like service, but then it's really about the culture. What are those little things that we can shift that create a big impact? What was the bold promise they were making about service at the amusement park? Honestly, I don't remember. I, I don't remember the exact, but it, it, it was something to the two. I don't remember the exact wording, but it's you're there to have a great time. And the thing is that... Is, is there's a specific reason why the word customer never appears in the Zappos values because it's not just for the customer. It's for everyone. And so if you want your customers to have a fun experience, you need your employees to have a fun experience. If you want them to have great service, your people have to have great service. All that across the board. It can't be limited to it. That's where I think companies go off the rails is they think they're, they have to put up this one face for customers, but not living it inside. Tony had this great phrase that said the brand is the lagging indicator of the culture. Whatever is actually happening within the culture is going To make its way to the brand six months later. And so that's why it's important to live the values both inside the company and outside the company.
1: That's a really great insight that it's important to focus both internally and externally with the culture. Where does it matter whether a company starts first looking internally at how things are done and what type of feelings that are being generated inside, or is it easier and more effective to look first
0: at the customer experience? What's been your perspective on that, Robbie? First, you got to see is there some bleeding going on? If you're losing customers really quickly, then then it's time to take a look at that. One of the most influential books on that for us was The Ultimate Question by Fred Reichheld, which goes over the NPS net promoter score process, which is the most amazing way to really tell if you're doing well with your customers. I'm sure everybody's seen that kind of question on a scale of zero to 10. How likely are you to promote this to other people? It's not satisfaction. Satisfaction's a weak rating. How likely are you to tell your friends, go shop at Zappos? That's the true measure of a great product or service. And the delta between that, if you didn't say it's a 10, why is that not a 10? So if, if something's not happening right on the customer end, I would recommend starting there and saying, what is it that would make it a 10? Because without the customers, you don't have a business. You don't have people to pay and support and have a company. If things are going well with customers and things are great, awesome. Now look within and see who are our best people? Why? What are they doing? What are their qualities? What are those things that we can narrow down to a list of values that we can really then hire by, live, and fire by, and then create that model for culture moving forward that's going to create that experience for the customer? Another
1: insight that jumped off the page for me when I was reading a was talking about how you need to look at hiring from this perspective and be able to find culture fits. And the, the way that you asked the questions and led us through that thinking process in the book, I thought was terrific because the intention is to find authentic culture fit candidates that share the values. So how does a manager have to think about interviewing differently to make that technique work in their business?
0: Yeah. So the idea with this is you, you take those values that you're looking for, of the person. And then rather than looking to their resume and their experience is asking questions to see if they live them and love them because it's easier to train skills than it is values. It's very hard to shift somebody's values. So for example, you take a value like service. And one of the questions we would ask is tell me about a time where you helped somebody out where you didn't have to, because if that's the case, if you love service, you'll find those pretty easily. If you don't, it doesn't matter how much customer service experience you had. If you don't like being of service, you're not going to like that. You're not going to like this place. You're not going to like those values. So take any value that you have. Imagine a question for it of of when did you take a project from start to finish, if that kind of accountability is really important. Take any of that and see where in their life is there evidence for it, even outside of the resume. So it's really looking for the experiences they have with it, for the culture
1: fit, rather than what they can enhance, because it's always been said we're never as perfect as we are as when we present a resume. Yes, right. (laughs) Looking for the performance, we're looking for the culture fit. And that's really interesting. To be able to ask questions about experiences that people have had, like you talked about with service. Yes. Was that did that come as a surprise to you when you discovered? Does this happen at Zappos, or did this come about through further evolution of the program?
0: This was really Zappos's discovery. Even before I got there, I really believe the engine of the company was the recruiting and training department because so much time and energy was invested in that in the front end. Most people, you get to the job. Here's your desk. Here's a supply closet. We'll do lunch. Is that a four week training process? And that's an investment, so that you don't. Have have to do all the micromanaging later and all the interviewing and all the keeping a bench of potential employees, really investing a lot of time and energy into that recruiting and training. It's it, like I said, it's heavy on the front end, but then you don't have to do all that management on the back end.
1: Robbie, are you ready for the my quest for the Best Lightning Round? Let's do it. So at the beginning, I, I asked you about a person who influenced or inspired you growing up and you talked about your Uncle Steve. When you were a teenager, what's a song that you loved?
0: Oh, wow. Oh my gosh, this is taking me back. I'd say it, it was the the Smashing Pumpkins, their, their big hit back in the day. Da-da-na, da-da-na, da-da-na. Cherub rock, I believe it was called. There you <laughs> go. You now are
1: leading the, the culture blueprint, and your mission is to help people really evolve and revolutionize their cultures so that they have a culture where people want to come to work and do their best work consistently. How do you get your word out about that mission out each and every week? What's been effective for you?
0: Yeah, for me, I've, I've first of all, like I said, I've been really lucky. Lucky to me is being at the right place the right time with the right people and I've had like speaker bureaus representing me promoting my work people like you who get who have an interest and, and I respond to things like this with the podcast and it's been but it's also been blogging it's been sharing my ideas it's been my own podcast that I share thoughts on sometimes it's been recently people may have heard of this new uh, platform called Clubhouse where it's all discussions recently got, got clients through that by just sharing all these thoughts on culture I've also been doing guest spots for other people's groups like now doing it for the, this form of COOs and chief of staffs. And I talk about something called the minimum viable culture, like minimum viable product for a product. I talk about minimum viable culture. These are the real hard hitting things that you need to know about culture. And uh, and I share that. And I really believe in sharing my best immediately. And if, if that's all you need, great, go run with it. But other companies say, okay, do you have more? And I'm like, I've got a lot more. And then we go deeper. In establishing your own company, what's the best advice you ever received? Well, what comes to mind first is, is setting up the company that Tony had me do. And, and he gave gave me this quote that continues to haunt me. It's one of those great quotes that just, it it keeps getting to me. And he said, the quote was, most businesses don't die of starvation. They die of indigestion from trying to do too much. And that's always helped me to focus. Like right now, I'm very focused on the Culture MBA cohort I'm taking through this program. And it's been very tempting to work on all these other projects and all these other things I could be doing. And I'm like, no, that's the death. That's the indigestion. Focus. Keep it here and focus. So that's some of the best advice I've ever given. And for you, Robbie, how do you define personal success? I'm being successful when I blank. When I I feel myself in the flow with a team, that for me is really being in the zone because that's when we're creating new things. We are. That's how I come up with my best work too. I was with this group, this leadership group, where they were all at odds with each other and they wanted to be aligned. And in the moment in this team, it just came to me, call it the universe, God, past knowledge, I don't know. But it actually is called the ROB process because it stands for requests, offers, back. I said, okay, if you're all in on this team, say all in. And if you're not, what's a request, an offer, or a boundary that you have that's being crossed that would, if we discuss it, you'll be all in. And we went around in this discussion, and with those three things, we got everybody to all in. So it's those kind of moments where I'm with a group, we're working on a problem, and then the solution evolves, and we innovate, and then I get to take that innovation and share with people like your listeners. That's real fulfillment for me.
1: That's so much fun. I I can imagine you doing that and how how exciting it is to see that evolution where people who are on the outside who are holding back suddenly give in and say, oh, okay, if you're going to respect that, I'm in. Yes,
0: exactly. Exactly.
1: So think back over the past year, and it's been a really unusual year, and we've all had to pivot and make changes. What's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's given you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction?
0: I'm really surprised to say this because if you saw my kitchen, you would totally disagree, but I've stopped having caffeine after being the most, the biggest, coffee connoisseur ever and this has surprised me that would help so much because i would have fought you to the death on it before this year and felt sorry for you not having your coffee what led to the shift i just noticed every day around midday like late morning i'd be really anxious and then i would need to do something to manage my anxiety and i'm like maybe it's the coffee and i i ran an experiment which is what i believe you do when you do these things and i i tried a week off of it and then it was my birthday i'm like it's my birthday i'll get to have coffee I'm gonna because it's my birthday I ruined my whole birthday I was anxious my entire birthday after having a a coffee after not having it for a week and and that and ever since that shift I've been a little more tired here and there but I've gotten a lot more done one of the other things that I I
1: think would be remiss if we didn't talk about was the importance of making culture a game what's your philosophy about the importance of gamifying culture
0: yeah I really learned about this a lot through my mentor Daniel Mezick, and he'd been studying the work of, of this book called reality is broken that's studied gamers worldwide and everybody in HR is about and culture is about engagement. How do we keep people engaged? And if you've ever seen a kid play a video game, you don't have to motivate them. They are fully engaged. And what makes a game? And this is different from gamification. Gamification is badges and points and those types of things. But games are very simple, meaning there's a goal to the game. There's rules to the game. There's a way to keep score and nobody's forced to play it. And those four principles are key. And what I realize is a lot of culture work out there is is what I'd call spoiling children. How do we get them to be happy? How do we get them to stay? All those things like that. When the truth is the greatest lever that you have is the like the game analogy, the character dying in the game. You don't want your Super Mario to die. That's your big motivation through a lot of playing it, even more than getting the mushroom, right? You want to make sure you don't fall down that pit. And so what I've see, seen in culture is that the highest leverage point you have for any tribe, for any group, is the ability to kick somebody out. And if you use that and map that to the rules of a game, which are values, for a company, then people see it serious and they say, oh, okay, wait, these are the rules of the game. This is how to play it. This is how to win it. And then it's either a game you want to play or you don't. Either you like soccer or you don't. Nobody forces you to play it, but you don't have to market soccer. It's just either you really like this because it's a well clearly defined game. And that's what we're really doing with culture is defining a great game that you love to play. And then people would love that game and want to play it with you and not get kicked out off the team or they won't and they don't want to join your company. That is such a great summation of the importance
1: of culture and how to think about it. From a game perspective, that really helps. Robbie Richmond, you have helped us so much by share, being so generous with sharing your stories, your examples, your insights, and helping us really understand how culture is so fundamental and so crucial to leading an important and effective business, especially when you're looking to grow the business. We talked about the importance of beliefs and how experience helps transform those beliefs, and how culture is a feeling. And if you look at every touch point along the way, you'll really understand whether you're conveying the feelings that you you want to for the customers as well as your employees. The importance of being able to think about who you're looking to recruit and bringing them in as a culture fit because they can learn the specifics about the organization. They can learn the technical skills, but it's really hard to get people to change beliefs or have different values. Robbie, for these reasons and so many more, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today on my quest for the best. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. Hey, Robbie, before we say goodbye for now, where is it that we could find out more about you and your work online?
0: Sure, you can go to robertrichman.com, R-I-C-H-M-A-N. Everything is there from the, the virtual open spaces that I run for companies, the culture revolution, of the bigger program of transformation for a company. And then soon to come is the the Culture MBA. We're doing the beta of a cohort right now, but we're going to do a larger program soon so that more people have access to all this information.
1: We're going to link to your site as well as call out those specific offerings and opportunities. So people who listen to this interview can go to the show notes and find links to robertrichman.com, as well as links to your book, as well as to your social media. Robert Richmond, author of The Culture Blueprint, Thank you again so much for joining me on My
0: Quest for the Best. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on My Quest for the Best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review My Quest for the Best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com.